Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a founder uh, that is executing, building, scaling, you name it, out of Canada, out of Montreal, and definitely doing great, great stuff. Uh, I think that we're going to learn quite a bit, uh, and I don't want to make you all wait any longer. So without further ado, Sharif Habib, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. So originally born in Cairo, and obviously you spent some time there until your parents moved to Montreal when you were 10 years old, but how was life growing up for you? Life was great. Um, I mean, uh, we, you know, my parents had a great life in Egypt. Uh, they moved to Canada because they wanted to give me uh, and my sister uh, better life opportunities. Uh, you know, sometimes people talk about winning the lottery by being born in a certain country you know people you know often say i won the lottery because i was born in the us or born in canada um so what my parents basically did is that they changed the odds in our favor in favor by moving to canada and i really appreciate that um and i think that's what is so powerful uh with immigration they left behind a very comfortable uh, life to uh, to learn something new for us so that that was that was great and also for you, I mean, you were already 10 years old, so you were quite aware. You already had your friends that you had made and, I mean, quite a change for you. So how do you think that that has shaped you up and especially your personality? And even even bigger than that, like, how do you deal with uncertainty? Because I'm sure that that has taught you quite a bit now that you're an entrepreneur. Absolutely. I mean, moving away from Egypt was obviously uh, very hard on my parents. I think it was very you know much harder for them than it was for my sister and i because as kids you adapt uh, uh, in an easier way um but it, it shaped me because it, it um, i'm a very adaptable guy i get along with people very easily um and you know we'll talk about this later but i've moved several times since then as an adult to different places um and i think i did a good job um both keeping in touch with my old friends um, and and also making new new friends in, in new places. So, you know, my first friend uh, that I met on the first day of school at four years old is still someone that is very close to me today. Um, and we've kept in touch throughout all these years. Um, and I've obviously made, you know, many new friends since then. And, and I would say that this is one of my strengths. 
And also for you, I guess that you had there your grandparents, also entrepreneurs. So I'm sure that you learned quite a bit from them and, and seeing them operating their own business. So, so what did you take out of, of, of so, some of those lessons that you took out of that? Absolutely. Um, my four parents were, uh, sorry, my four grandparents were entrepreneurs, as you mentioned. Um, on my dad's side, uh, my grandfather was a civil engineer and a real estate developer. And my grandmother um, had a, a furniture uh, or woodworking factory. They made uh, furniture, and but she also supplied uh, many uh, things for my grandfather's uh, building. So, I, I, you know, they were clients or suppliers of each other, which was interesting. And on my mother's side, uh, a bit of a similar story where my grandfather uh, was a, a, a grower. He had a, a, a farm. And he was growing um, flowers, uh, fruits, and vegetables. And uh, my grandmother had a very successful flower business. So again, kind of a, a vertically integrated uh, business. And uh, you know, growing up, uh, my four grandparents always talked about work at the dinner table. And uh, I grew up with with that jargon. And uh, you know, what's really interesting is that all of them were very successful business owners without going to business school, without access to venture capital, or even traditional sources of financing like bank debt, all of that, you know, 50, 60 years ago didn't exist in Egypt. Um, and they all succeeded with a mix of extreme hard work, good judgment, uh, and integrity, you know, doing the right thing for their employees, for their customers. Um, and when you think about it, that's really basically all you need to know to succeed in business. The rest is kind of micro-adjustments and optimization, but this is really the foundation of it all. Um, and I consider myself extremely lucky uh, to have grown up in that environment uh, with those role models. So it, it, was, it was an amazing uh, experience. And talking about not having, you know, the education or, or just, just having the drive itself. I mean, look at you at 16 years old with your first business. So tell us about this. Yeah, um, you know... I was an accidental entrepreneur. Um, essentially, at 16, um, I started a, a business with um, a very close friend of mine in, uh, in high school. And essentially for us, it was a very simple means of gaining financial independence from our parents. Uh, it was a very, you know, this is how we got away from, uh, you know, having to depend on an allowance uh, from our parents to to get nice things and, and, and go out. So we started a, we were both, um, uh, tech, uh, uh, nerds. And, uh, we started a small it consulting business, uh, you know, configuring networks and installing printers in a dentist's office, making websites, stuff like that. And we were earning, you know, way more money than anybody at our age. Um, and, uh, and we had an amazing, an amazing time. So that was another great formative experience, but, um, and that's really when I decided that I wanted to be an entrepreneur for the rest of my career, uh, growing up, uh, the dream was to become a doctor and, uh, you know, at 15 or 16, when we started that business, uh, I got hooked. And, uh, from, from then on, I had no doubt on how I was going to spend the rest of my career. That's amazing. Uh, and obviously, in this case, I mean, you had that love for computers and you ended up studying computer science. So I guess, how do you remember, like, how you started to develop this love for computers? 
Yes, my dad um, imported um, kind of one of the first, was one of the first people in Egypt to own a, a personal computer. Um, of course, they were available, you know, for, for military or commercial uses, but um, he, he was very early on, uh, he really believed in it. And, uh, and we had a computer early at a very early age. And he really cared about me, um, you know, learning to type and, and learning to use the computer. And, and I was really hooked from a, from a very young age. Got it. So then let me ask you this, because I mean, you go into school, you go and study computer science and obviously you kept at it. By being an entrepreneur there, I mean, it was your second business, like obviously this one, uh, one where you would be juggling with uh, college, but then also having crazy amounts of cash around you. So tell us about this telecom business. Yeah, that was a really interesting story. So if you remember back then, we're talking about the year 2001. Um, back then, uh, you know, today everybody has an iPhone or an Android device. Uh, back then, there were you know hundreds of different handsets that you could have, and uh, a friend of mine uh, and and myself you know had seen uh, a cool uh, Ericsson phone. I remember it was the T twenty eight, and uh, that Ericsson phone was available uh, in 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 Europe and Singapore, etc. And, and we had a friend who was going to Dubai over the holidays, and we asked him to get us two of these phones. And uh, he got back, we had the phones, and we were the coolest kids in college. And we then realized that they were sold on eBay uh, for much more than we had bought them. So, you know, it was a silly kind of business. It really started from there. We started importing uh, phones from um, Asia and the Middle East and Europe and uh, selling them on eBay. And then we started a wholesale business where we started selling them to uh, uh, cell phone stores uh, across across Canada, and then we started selling them to the network operators. So so the the business really grew uh, very fast. Uh, we started from nothing again, no no cash, no financing, and uh, and we grew grew it into a pretty big operation. Now don't forget that we're full time computer science students. So we uh, we were three partners at the time, and we would put all of our classes in one day. And run run the business for the six other days of the week, and uh, it was it was really fun. Uh, we were working, you know, nonstop, and it, it was again a really fantastic experience because we learned a lot from it. I remember one uh, strange situation where uh, we found a supplier for a a model of Nokia phones uh, in the states, and we found a buyer. Uh, in Singapore um, for uh, thousands of these phones. And each of these phones cost, you know, a few hundred bucks. So it, this was a, a transaction for s several hundred thousand. And of course, we didn't have that money. So we flew um, down to the U.S. to that supplier and we made sure that they have the stock. And then we got the client uh, in Singapore to wire the money and, and we stayed there overnight. And of course, the guys in the U.S., you know, when they went, took our passports to check our identity and, and all of that, they couldn't believe uh, that we're 19 years old, you know, doing transactions of that size. Uh, <laughs> but that, you know, that big trade put us on the map and uh, we started trading pretty big quantities of, of, of handsets 
And um, over time, we got into the accessories business, which which actually turned out to be a better business than than handsets. And um, the accessories business had a much bigger had much bigger margins, um, and was much more. Um, it was a very very fragmented uh, supply chain, so we were able to make a dent. Uh, so I, I you know I did this business for. Uh, about five years with two of my partners, and uh, after five years, they uh, bought me out. So I sold my shares to my two partners uh, because I wanted to go and and do something else. And that's when I moved to uh, Switzerland, and I joined uh, McKinsey in their Geneva office. So why being an entrepreneur, being able to build your own dream? Why why did you decide to go and build the dream of someone else? It's a great question, and um, it's because I wanted to do something even bigger. And, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, uh, I had never heard of McKinsey, actually. Um, I, uh, I read in the newspaper, uh, there was an article that basically said, um, uh, on, you know, that was, it was doing an analysis of the backgrounds of entrepreneurs. And it said that many of them had gone to great schools, you know, Ivy League schools, but it also said, you know, it showed the backgrounds of many um, successful entrepreneurs. And I remember the article basically said, you know, the number one place where these people come from is McKinsey. Number two is Goldman Sachs. Number three is, you know, Bain, BCG, Morgan Stanley, whatever it is. Um, and I and I had never heard of any of these things. And I basically said, well, I'm going to apply to each of these in order, so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna apply to McKinsey first, and if I don't get it, I'll apply to Goldman and, and so on and so forth. And um, and uh, I, I said, well, before I apply to McKinsey, let me, let me send some questions to one of their offices so I can get my answers, and then when I understand what this is all about, I'll apply to McKinsey in Montreal. And uh, I picked Switzerland kind of randomly, and I started emailing them all, all sorts of silly questions. And after a while, they said, well, you're asking a lot of questions, um, so why don't you, you know, next Monday at 9 a.m., speak to the senior partner, and, and he'll answer all your questions. So I said, you know, great. We had this conversation. And uh, after the, the phone call, I got an email from their recruiters and said, Congratulations! Uh, you passed the first phone interview. We'd like to invite you uh, to a full day of of, uh, of interviews. Um, and uh, you know, I took uh, I took a plane and I went to uh, Zurich, and I did uh, you know the typical eight interviews in one day uh, thing. And what what's really interesting with that is um, because I didn't really know how big of a deal this was. Um, and because I didn't kind of torture myself with the preparation, I, I basically bought a book um, that says how to prepare for a consulting interview. I read it over the uh, the plane and, and train ride. I think because I didn't know, how, you know, uh, I, I was not intimidated because I had no idea what this whole McKinsey thing was about. So uh, that, was, that was another uh, kind of lucky break in my career. And how would you say, because it's interesting how, all these people that end up going to a McKinsey or to one of those uh, Bain or consulting uh, type of operations, they end up being able to be very good at dissecting a problem and really coming up with a solution. Maybe like dissecting like a big problem to like multiple small problems and then tackling each one of those. So, so what did you get from that? 
Yeah, that, that is one of the, the very nice skills that we got is kind of breaking something that's pretty complicated down uh, to more simple things. But I think really what I got the most out of that experience is, is the confidence in myself that I can, um, I can learn a new industry or a new problem uh, with a beginner's mindset. And just by asking basic questions, kind of understand the big, um, the big forces in, in that industry. I remember at some point um, I was staffed on a project in, um, in Egypt. And um, it was for the Ministry of Transport, and it was a huge uh, project. And um, over, you know, every weekend I would go have dinner at my grandparents, and um, and my grandmother asked me a question. You know, grandmothers sometimes they get to the, the core of, of something very fast, and and she said, "What the hell do you know about transportation? And how is a you know a 24 year old?" Um, advising the minister of transport on a strategy like you know what what do you know about it and you know that was an, an amazing question because she was absolutely right i mean we we uh were a bunch of kids um um advising the, the ministry of transport on on a strategy and um and essentially you know that that experience really taught me that i could learn any industry in any situation and uh and understand kind of the, the basic things but it also made me realize that, you know, um, I, I actually didn't know anything. And, and her question was totally fair. You know, who am I to advise on strategy? So, so that, that was a, a nice dose of, uh, of humility. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So, so then obviously you go to Wharton and Wharton is just like an amazing community, you know, that amazing entrepreneurs have come out of there. Uh, but I guess this was a really nice segue to perhaps say, Perhaps kind of like a reshift or redirect your your career, and I think that this got you into you know kind of like the world of building and scaling and and, and hyper growth, uh, and eventually you end up in your uncle's company. So how 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 did this happen? Tell us about it. Yeah, I mean m maybe just a a quick word on on McKinsey and, and Wharton because I think it was a a really important lesson for me. Um, in that stage of my life, you know, in my early and twenties and and my mid twenties, uh, because I didn't go to any fancy college or uh, or any of that, I was still in the in the mindset of um, attaching myself to quote unquote prestigious brands, right? I was still in that mindset of uh, you know having a chip on my shoulder and 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 showing the world that I can do it, right? That I can work for a McKinsey. Um, that I can go to a, a top-rated um, Ivy League school despite my uh, background and, and total lack of connections, etc. Um, so that there was a kind of a, unfortunately, you know, this kind of insecurity of, of, of attaching myself to, to a brand. Uh, having said that, it was an amazing experience, and I'm really glad I did it. Um, and at, at Wharton, um, at that point, Wharton was really um, shifting from being known exclusively as a finance school um, to really uh, being, you know, one of the good places where entrepreneurs come out, um, and I and I and I went there really as that shift was happening, and you know, many amazing entrepreneurs came out of that school um, later on, which, which which again was was great. Um, 
during my uh, in the few months between McKinsey and Wharton, I uh, um, I, I was unemployed and uh, I was helping my uncle. He's a world-renowned liver surgeon, and uh, he had a small company called Incision, and uh, that company was essentially um, uh, had a few patents uh, coming out of his experience uh, uh, operating. Uh, in, in, in liver surgery. And um, I spent some time trying to organize the strategy, thinking about how we make products out of these patents, uh, what the distribution is going to look like, et cetera. And during business school, I, 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 I stayed in touch with him and, and helping him kind of informally. So when I graduated, um, I decided to uh, uh, join forces with him full time. Uh, I started as the COO of the, con- of the of the company, kind of dealing with everything that was not uh, uh, medical or scientific. And uh, after about a year, uh, him and the board uh, uh, made me CEO, and he was a CMO, so chief medical officer. Um, and we had a really good partnership uh, because we really trusted each other. I mean, he's my uncle, and we you know we have a really really good relationship. And the, the, we were very complementary, so the division of labor was really clear. Um, he was going to take care of the medicine and the science, um, and I was going to take care of um, everything else or, you know, quote-unquote, the business side of it. Uh, so that was a really successful uh, partnership. I really learned a lot from that. And, um, and that's really got, what got me hooked to the business of healthcare. I got really passionate about healthcare. Um, during my time at Incision, and I knew that um, I was going to spend, um, you know, most of, if not all, of the rest of my career in healthcare because I really loved it. So then, so then, how was this journey uh, with with Incision? It was um, it was really uh, fantastic. We, you know, we had very little means. We had only raised a little bit of money, uh, kind of from friends and family, angels. Um, no, no institutional investors, and um, and we had to deal with a lot of constraints. Uh, as you probably know, um, in, you know, building a medical device company is a very capital intensive um, uh, journey, and we didn't have capital, <laughs> so we we did a lot with with very little, and we you know we 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 put out the products. Uh, we passed through the regulatory hurdles, whether it's the FDA or Health Canada or in Europe. We sold our devices all over the world. Um, Canada, uh, sorry, uh, the U.S., Germany, and China were our largest mar- uh, markets, and we we made a real dent. I mean, these were surgical devices that helped in the treatment of liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, um, and and cancer of the bile duct. So we really made a dent um, by having a huge impact on these patients. Uh, increasing their lifespan, improving their quality of life. And um, so it was a very, very uh, impactful and, and motivating business. Uh, but it was hard because we were competing with uh, companies that, um, you know, their CEO, their, the CEO's salary was was higher than our whole annual revenue of the whole company. So right. it was kind of a you know, it, it, it's in the medical device world. It's it's uh, it takes a lot of money. It takes you know usually tens of millions uh, to get to market and to uh, uh, to be commercially viable. And we did it with with an order of magnitude less. Um, and when the opportunity came to exit to 
um, Boston Scientific, we knew that was the right exit for us because uh, it would allow us to take um, our products and 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 multiply by a hundred uh, the sales force and the commercial efforts, and therefore get so many more patients to benefit from it. Um, so we um, so we came to a deal with 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 Boston Scientific that was a really good outcome. Uh, for us personally, a really great outcome for for all of the investors and shareholders. Uh, but most importantly, it was a great outcome for uh, the patients that needed this product because so many more now could benefit from it. So obviously, this allowed you to really see the full cycle of a business, right? All exactly. the way until the finish line. And I'm sure that that gave you a lot of um, visibility and perspective too. But I guess... If you had to take one one lesson from this experience, what would you say that was? Um, I would say that um, you know we we had some really tough times uh, building Emcision. I mean, we had you know we we ran out of money several times. I remember uh, you know sometimes passing the payroll on my personal credit card. Uh, so these were really tough times. Uh, but I feel like when you're working on something so impactful. It really makes those uh, tough times much easier uh, because now you're 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 working for a cause um, and you're not just running a business and uh, and I think that if we weren't uh, in that field or doing something with such a, an important mission and uh, knowing the the patients that we were helping um, it would have it would have made it you know almost unbearable psychologically uh, to go through the tough times. So let's let's shift gears here because after Emcision, you started your baby, Dialog. Yes. So let's talk about Dialog. So how do you how do you come up with with this problem, you know, and how did you go about addressing it with a solution that has become Dialog today? Yeah, there was actually a bit of an overlap between the two uh, because the deal with Boston Scientific um, at the beginning fell through uh, because of a, a regulatory issue. And it took us um, kind of, I think, 15 or 16 months to to fix it and and consummate the deal. Uh, so there was a little bit of a of an overlap between the two the two businesses. But um, essentially, uh, with Emcision, with my medical device company, I was traveling all over the world to sell um, our devices, and I got a an amazing education of how healthcare is delivered and structured and how the systems work in different countries and i i i was really inspired by uh the healthcare systems of uh, in scandinavian countries uh in switzerland and i felt like we could take a lot of these best practices and bring them back to canada at the same time i met um the folks out of an incubator here in montreal called diagram and Diagram uh, wanted to start. Diagram is, you know, at the time was was more of a fintech uh, incubator, and they wanted to start a vertically integrated health insurance company, kind of like what Oscar was. And um, and I decided to to join forces with an early team, and and to start that that business. And uh, very quickly we realized that just the telemedicine portion of of that was really interesting. And, um, you know, in the first few weeks or maybe months of, of running this, we, we thought that we would um, 
build a B2C company. So the, you know, the vision was anyone on their phone could see a doctor and, uh, and not have to wait, uh, days or weeks to get an appointment with their primary care provider. Now, maybe just to open a, a small parenthesis, um, people in the U.S. sometimes feel that the Canadian healthcare system is, is the nirvana. And if you hear, if you listen to, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders or others, uh, you know, they, they talk about the Canadian healthcare system as if it was the best thing in the world. And us here living here, you know, we recognize there's a lot of great things about our system, but we, we also recognize that there's many shortcomings. And, and actually many people think that the U.S. healthcare system is better. And, and the reality is, is, is somewhere in between, right? I think if you pick and choose some elements of both, uh, you, you get to the right system. And, um, so all of this to say is that, uh, we started working on this idea of allowing you to see a doctor faster, um, uh, on your smartphone at any time. And we quickly, you know, within the first couple of months or so pivoted to a B2B play and which is, which is what we're operating now. So we basically figured out that, uh, Canadian employers, um, were, even if the healthcare sister system here is universal and free, uh, Canadian employers were in fact, um, paying a lot of money indirectly because their employees were missing work. Um, and their employees were not as productive as they can be because it takes weeks to deal with an issue. So we, we decided to, um, build a, a B2B focused telemedicine company and we would sell subscriptions to businesses, uh, where they would pay us, uh, a small amount per employee per month to give all of their, um, employees access to our service. So this is how, you know, this is the first couple of years of, of the business. This is how it was. And that, uh, value proposition resonated really well in the market. And we grew it into what was becoming a very sizable business. And in the last couple of years, essentially what we realized is that employers, um, deal with many suppliers in, in the health and wellness space. And there's a fatigue, uh, with dealing with all of these different point solutions and that nobody had really succeeded in created an integrated platform for these health and wellness services. So dialogue has evolved. You know, in the beginning, as a, you know, we started with this idea of building a vertically integrated health insurance uh, company, and then we decided to focus on telemedicine. We thought it was going to be B2C. Rapidly, we pivoted it into B2B. We saw a lot of traction there. That was clearly the product market fit. And more recently, um, you know, we now see each other, uh, sorry, we, we see each, um, ourselves not just as a pure play telemedicine company, but as an integrated health platform that includes telemedicine for primary care, but also for mental health, for employee assistive programs. And we're going to continue building spokes to that hub. So it's really interesting how the idea ha has evolved over time with, uh, with market feedback. So I guess for the folks that are listening, what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money at Dialogue? So we make money by charging businesses a uh, monthly recurring fee. Uh, it's a per employee per month fee. And depending on how many services you sign up for, um, you know, it could be six, seven, eight bucks per employee per month if you're a primary care only client. Um, and it could go, you know, it could double, um, if you're, 
uh, if you subscribe to other services. And uh, today we have about 25,000 different businesses that are clients of ours. Um, a thousand of them uh, we acquired directly and the rest, you know, 24,000 we acquired by working with distribution partners such as insurance carriers, benefits consultants, uh, etc. All right. So, so Sharif, so what I wanted to ask you too is, I mean, for a business like this, obviously it requires capital. So how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, we have raised just over a hundred million dollars. Uh, Got it. And obviously the, the tech uh, scene, I mean, the hyper growth company scene is booming in Montreal. What do you think has triggered that? Montreal is um, an incredible place to start a tech company. Uh, we have uh, one of the highest concentration of universities and students per capita in the world. We have many great technical universities here. Um, cost of living is quite cheap. Uh, quality of life is amazing. Um, and, and the government has put in place several uh, incentives for R&D and, and technical work. So all of these reasons together have created a very vibrant scene. And I would say that in the last 10 years, um, this scene has exploded. I graduated uh, from Wharton in 2011. And going into Wharton, I thought that I would, uh, you know, move to Silicon Valley after. That was kind of my dream. And um, I saw what was going on back home and how the tech scene was starting here in Montreal. And uh, I decided to come back home, you know, you know, so, some for personal reasons, being with friends and family, but some some because I, 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 I saw this emergence of a scene. Um, so I think that Montreal is probably one of the best places in the world to uh, to build a tech company. And uh, and let me ask you this, because I know that going back to what you were saying on the on the fundraising, obviously for you guys, it has been not a, a thing of roses and, and, and beautiful. <laughs> I mean, obviously at some points it has been cloudy, specifically on your Series B. What happened? Um, essentially... You know, I don't know the exact percentage, but I think that the vast majority of venture capital in the world is concentrated in the U.S. And we had a very hard time raising from American investors because invariably the feedback we received was, you know, your growth is unbelievable. Your metrics are fantastic. You're really top of the side. We rarely see those numbers. Um but we just don't understand the Canadian healthcare system enough um, to make an investment there. Uh, it was always kind of a different version of this is outside of our circle of competence or we, we don't understand this well enough. So when you exclude, um, you know, the, the biggest source of capital in the world from your fundraising process, it, it of course makes it much more difficult. Um, there are now many great investors in Canada, um, and it's easier to raise money here. Uh, but it's still, you know, a much more limited uh, environment uh, than in the U.S. Or, or even Europe. So our our universe of potential investors was was limited, and um, and our Series B, uh, you know, took a little bit longer than we would have liked it to take, and we were, you know, getting. Uh, a little bit dangerously close or closer than I would like uh, from running out of money. So it was a pretty stressful time. But the nice thing is that uh, we ended up uh, essentially raising money from uh, 
you know, our, the investor that we had, you know, put as our number one. Uh, it was really, you know, our dream investor for this business. Uh, it's CDPQ. It's the pension fund of our province. And uh, we wanted to partner with them because they have a very long-term orientation. This is really patient capital. And because we were building something in, in the healthcare field, uh, we felt that having an investor that also had this, this uh, kind of pension fund or, or, or public orientation uh, would really help us. And, um, and again, you know, it was, it was difficult, but at the end, we ended up closing uh, with our uh, number one uh, favorite investor. So it worked out really well. But uh, I would tell you that for a few weeks, I was, I was sweating really hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm guessing, you know, like, I'm sure that there's a lot of people right now that are listening that are also maybe like sweating really hard right now, because obviously COVID, you know, has complicated a lot, you know, the, the opportunity to interface with investors, the opportunity. I mean, people literally have to work a little bit harder. Uh, even though if you take a look at data, it seems that, you know, it has been booming, you know, the total number of, of financings. But I get when you're at that point and, and you're sweating hard, as you said, and you're starting to hear those voices of what if, what if that, I mean, what kind of piece of advice would you have for the folks that are listening? You know, how can they go about quieting those voices? Yeah, Alejandro, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think I think the founder or the CEO psychology is so important. And I think that I'm probably not the only one who hasn't taken care of it over time. Um, I think we work so hard and, and we're so into um, the action that we don't take care of our own psychology. And I would say that this is really important. And then when you look at so many you know, now iconic and successful companies, and you read their origin stories, um, you'll see how much they struggle to raise money. Like look at Peloton, like Peloton now like is a breakout success. You read, you read about their first couple of years and they couldn't raise money from anybody. Every, everybody thought, you know, hardware is impossible. The margins were not good enough. There's no moat, et cetera. And, you know, you, you, you read about companies like Cisco, how many, how many no's they got before they got a yes, and it was one of the best investments ever. And and you realize that, you know, you just have to set yourself up that you're not going to get a yes in the first 10, 20, 30 meetings, um, and that you maybe have to do 100 meetings uh, to get a term sheet. And if you go in with that mindset and you end up performing better, hey, fantastic. But at least you're going in with that expectation that it's going to be hard and it's going to be long and you're going to get a lot of no's. The other thing that I would mention is that during this time when I was raising the Series B, um, I was going to the gym every morning and I was listening uh, to an audiobook. It was the uh, um, uh, the Nike uh, founder's book, Shoe Dog, um, and I was listening to it in the in the morning. And Shoe Dog, you know, Nike is obviously in a very different industry, very different time. There was no venture capital involved, but Nike in their first you know ten or fifteen years was so close to the brink of uh, disaster or uh, bankruptcy um, or, or worse. Um, and it just makes you realize that even if, you know, I was in a different era raising money for a health tech company, um, that the, the experience was actually very similar. And I think that every entrepreneur, every business goes through these difficult valleys um, and you just have to keep the faith. You have to, you know, believe in yourself and your team. 
And if you have something good, then eventually it works out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so just for the folks that are listening to get an understanding of the size of Dialogue today. So anything that you can share on numbers of employees or anything? Yes, uh, we um, employ um, about 800 people. Uh, wow. six of, 600 of them are uh, healthcare providers and, um, and 200 of them are uh, kind of in, an, in our other functions. So um, it, it's, um, and we, we tripled, um, I remember when I started the company, um, uh, one of our investors, you know, said that the best companies in the world, uh, they triple, triple, double, double, or, or the other way around, I don't remember, but, but it kind of like that, 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 that silly uh, heuristic. And I, and I remember saying like this guy is nuts. And uh, essentially, we ended up doing better than that, which is, which, you know, looking back at it, I, it's, it's hard to believe, but it's really amazing. So, so I guess, um, you know, one of the questions that I typically ask guests that come on the show, and I think it would be very appropriate here to, to ask you, is if you had the opportunity to go back in time and obviously go back to that point where perhaps, you know, like even before starting dialogue, you know, like maybe your younger self in 2016 and you were able to give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a business. What would that be and why knowing what you know now? Um. I would say probably that one one piece of advice is is to trust my instincts more. Um, you know, almost every single time where I made a decision uh, that didn't listen to that inner voice or that gut feeling, over time it ended up being the wrong one. Even if I made the decision with kind of what I thought um, was the right data or trying to be logical about it or or trying to apply things, I I. I I learned in business school. At the end of the day, I learned uh, that my instincts and my gut are are often right. And if I don't listen to that little voice and I make decisions uh, based on other things, I I often regret it. So I would say listen to my instincts more. Very profound, Sharif. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, I am on Twitter. I don't have many followers, but I'm... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting used to that new medium. I really enjoy it. Uh, so I am at Sharif, my first name, C-H-E-R-I-F. Um, or you can email me, my first name, at dialogue.co. Um, I always love hearing from folks. Amazing, Sharif. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. Have a great day. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.